Okay, in, in keeping with my old school theme here, I'm going to tell a, an old school story about something called a milkman. Now, there used to be such people. Okay, not anymore, but they used to be around. And anybody who is involved in sales or marketing should maybe just listen a little extra close to this story that a woman shared in a magazine. She said, we just moved into a new home and we were besieged by salesmen for everything from laundry service to life insurance. One busy morning, a dairyman came to the door. No, I said firmly, my husband and I don't drink milk. Actually, we did, but we got it at the supermarket. I'll be glad to deliver a quart every morning for, for cooking. That's more than we need, I replied, starting to close the door. Well, ma'am, how about some cream? Barry's coming in now, and no, I said curtly, we never use cream. The dairyman repeated slowly, and I congratulated myself on my sales resistance. The following morning, however, the same dairyman appeared at the door. A bowl of dewy strawberries held gently, carefully in one hand, and a half-pint bottle of cream in the other. And as he slowly poured the cream over the berries, he said, Lady, I got to thinking, you sure have missed a lot. <laughs> and right then and there, we, we signed up. <coughs> this dairyman's persistence paid off. And this morning, Jesus tells us that persistence can pay off for us as well in getting help. Luke writes these words, a parable. Now, he was telling them a parable to show them that they must at all times pray and not lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect people. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect people, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Okay, we should have absolutely no difficulty figuring out the reason for this parable because Luke tells us the reason. He says, now Jesus was telling them a parable to show that they must pray at all times and not lose heart. Pretty simple. We are to pray at all times always and not lose heart. Even though our prayers don't seem to be answered, we are not to lose heart. Even though our loved one does not get better, we are to pray and not lose heart. Even though we are praying for something that's clearly in keeping with God's will, like our loved ones to come to faith or our children to return to faith, and nothing happens, we are not to lose heart. Even though God sometimes seems kind of unaware of the absolute urgency of a situation, like our need for a job, we are still to pray and not lose heart. There are lots of reasons people can lose heart in prayer. Sometimes we feel disappointed or unconnected, and Jesus knows that. So he tells us this parable 
to make sure that we do not succumb to prayerlessness. And the first person we meet is the judge. Now, he is the heavy in the story. And let's give him a name. Let's call him Flavius Marcellus. That's not a, a Jewish name, but that's okay. Because Flavius is clearly not a judge in the Jewish tradition. No single Jew would exercise so much power. Under Jewish law, if a matter was taken for trial, there were to be three judges. One chosen by the plaintiff, one chosen by the defendant, and the third judge chosen by the first two judges. And that was to make sure there was an unbiased panel. They didn't all have to agree, but there had to be two votes out of three. It worked. Flavius is apparently a judge who is appointed by the occupying Romans. And judges like Flavius were officially called Diana Gez a Roth, which means judges of punishment. And the theory was to make the blessings of Roman justice available to the masses. However, like a lot of government programs, it looked a lot better on parchment than it worked in practice. The people referred to these Roman-appointed judges as Diana Gaze Loth, which means robber judges. The people rapidly learned that only those able to pay hefty bribes could get justice. Justice was on sale to the highest bidder. And Jesus says two things about Flavius the judge. First, he doesn't fear God. And second, he doesn't regard people. And what Jesus is saying is, here is a man that you cannot make feel ashamed. You can't say, for God's sake, do this, because he doesn't fear God. And you can't say, for my sake, or for the sake of humankind, or the sake of your own personal honor, do this, because he has no regard for people. There just aren't any handles to use to grab onto a guy like Flavius. He's in it for himself. Now, the only other character in the parable is a widow, and we're going to call her Ethel. And that is a Jewish name. It means noble, or the noble one of God. Any Ethels here? Okay. <laughs> Ethel is having trouble with a person that she calls her opponent. And Jesus does not tell us anything about her opponent. But from my extensive training and study of melodrama, <laughs> I've always figured that he's one of those guys with a black hat and a thin black mustache. I mean, they're always after widows and their pretty daughters. You know, you must pay the rent. That guy. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, widow Ethel is in big trouble. Flavius is the only one who can help her, and he is a very far cry from Dudley Do-Right. He is not willing to help. This widow is not rich enough, she's not important enough, she's not connected enough to rate his attention. So Ethel goes into action. And when she is done, he is still unwilling to help. But he helps her anyway. And Jesus says the reason is that Ethel is able to make helping easier than not helping. She, she makes him an offer he can't refuse. Flavius goes out to pick up the morning newspaper in his judicial bathrobe, and she's hiding behind his BMW chariot. And she pops out and she says, give me justice for my opponent. He he's, comes to his office in the afternoon after his golf game, and she's chained herself to the desk. Give me justice from my opponent. 
He shows up to a swank party that evening, and she comes disguised as one of the caterers. <laughs> and she, she comes in, and she hands him a plate of, of hors d'oeuvres, which spell out in caviar, give me justice for my opponent. <laughs> and after enough of this, he just gives in. A class of high school sophomores was assigned to write a term paper, and one student named Jean had not been working hard steadily like the other students had. And the teacher was prepared for some sort of excuse, and Jean did not disappoint. My dog ate it. An original one. Now the teacher who had heard them all gave Jean a hard stare of unbelief. But Jean insisted. It's true. I had to force him, but he ate it. <laughs> well, well, Jean is like the judge. Or the judge is like Jean's dog. He can be forced. For a while he hangs tough. But finally he says, even though I do not fear God nor regard people, in other words, this guy is a rat who knows he's a rat. He, he, he agrees with the definition. I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. Literally in the text, the Greek, she is afraid that he's going to turn his face black. She's doing to him what one boxer does to another. And it becomes a whole lot easier to help her than not help her. Okay, that's the parable. And now you know that you should pray always and not lose heart. Because God is like the judge in the parable. He doesn't fear himself or regard people. He doesn't want to help. But if you keep coming at him, you can wear him out and he'll do what you want just to get some peace and quiet. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, it's not. I, knew, I think you knew that. The point is that God, the point is not that God is like this judge. The point is that he isn't like this judge. The point is the contrast between God and this judge. The point is that if an unrighteous secular judge will finally hear your appeals, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you and cares about you, hear you when you pray? Jesus says that we are his chosen ones, that we cry out for the elect. Prayer works because of who God is, not because of how we pray. So we don't need to worry about how we hold our hands or if we should stand or kneel or whatever, or if we say things in the right order. God isn't a tennis judge who is looking to count us out of bounds. God is a father who delights in us. Now, it is true that our prayers are not always answered according to our timetable. Anybody experience that ever? Oh, boy, two, two people have experienced that. That's not that <laughs> He knows that apparent delay can cause us to lose heart. That's the reason for the parable. But Jesus assures that God is not at all like the judge in the parable. The judge did not respect God. But God respects himself and his own reputation. Again and again, God says in Scripture, I have sworn by my own name, and I will do it. David relies on this in the 23rd Psalm that Jeff read. You never note that verse. You lead me in the right paths for your name's sake. 
In other words, for the sake of your reputation as God. God puts his rep on the line in how he treats us. God has regard for God. And the second reason that God is unlike Judge Flavius is that God has regard for people. He really loves us and cares what happens to us. And we don't know why this is so. I mean, the psalmist wrote, What is man that you are mindful of him? A poet wrote, Isn't it odd a being like God, who sees through the facade, still loves the clod he made out of sod? Isn't it odd? (laughs) And it is odd. But God assures us that unlike Judge Flavius, he has regard for people. And and as a result, he answers our prayer without delay and without having to be nagged into response. Jesus tells us that prayer is not trying to get an insensitive God to become more sensitive. And we act like it, it is at times. Dear God, I'm terribly concerned about the people uh, in that ready fire. And I want to point out that situation to you in case you haven't been reading the newspaper. The song goes, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Lord, if you really want to know. But God does not require our intelligence briefings about what's going on in the world or in our lives. God does not need our instructions in loving. God is infinitely aware, sensitive, and compassionate. Prayer is not an attempt to make an unwilling God willing. That God is kind of lazy, doesn't like to use his power very often, and so I've got to keep pulling on him until he heals my mother or my grandmother. I mean, there's a place for persistence in prayer. But some nagging goes beyond persistence. It comes from a root of unbelief rather than a root of faith. It assumes an unwilling God that you have to bully into something. And that kind of praying is not needed with the true God. He is absolutely loving, absolutely concerned. And if the prayer is not answered affirmatively, we must assume that God has a larger goal that we cannot yet know. But knowing God's love ought to encourage us to always pray. God wants us to pray. In fact, Jesus commands us to pray. The verb in verse 1 is not may or ought to, but must Prayer is an imperative for the Christian. In Colossians 4.2, Paul says the same thing. He writes there that we are to be devoted to prayer, or we are to devote ourselves to prayer. And I believe that there are at least five reasons why we must. First, because God wants us to pray. That's the reason God in human flesh tells the parable. As a matter of fact, In another place, Jesus says that when you pray, don't do it in public, do it in secret. And your God who sees in secret will what? He will reward you. We're actually rewarded for the act of praying. God wants us to pray. There is one thing that each individual Christian can do that nobody else can do. You are the only person who can give God your personal love and affection. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. Your pastor can't do that for you. Only you can give God that personal love that he wants very much, a love that's expressed in prayer. You're the only one who can do that. Second, we must pray 
Because prayer makes a difference. Prayer is actually a way in which God allows us to help shape the course of events. Do you think of prayer as making a difference? Not just asking God to make a difference, but making a difference yourself. I believe that you can. In an essay on prayer, C.S. Lewis sums up the drama of human history as one in which the scene and the general outline of the story is fixed by the author. But certain minor details are left for the actors to improvise. He says that part of the improvisation is our prayer and God's response to our prayer. This is because God has made us co-authors of history with him. I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, he left creation incomplete for our participation. Genesis 2.5, as yet there was no flowering plant in the garden because there was no person to till the soil. God wants us to be co-creators with him. And that includes creation through prayer. Lewis asked, can we believe that God really ever modifies his action in response to the suggestions of people? For infinite wisdom does not need telling what is best. And infinite love needs no urging to do it. The answer seems to be that God chooses to allow us as his children to have a voice. A voice through prayer in how he runs the universe and the affairs of our own lives. If that isn't true, then there's no real point to intercessory prayer at all. But if God's already decided everything that's going to happen, and if nothing can possibly alter that plan, then why should we pray for the ill, the lost, the confused, or the endangered? But we can't. Years ago, my parents were in a very severe head-on accident the day after Christmas, and it did not look like my dad was going to make it. At one point, he was given a 5% chance of surviving the surgery. Not very large number. And now, it may have been God's will for my father to go home there and then. But my prayer and the prayer of many others were for him to stay. And he stayed for another 20-plus years. Now, prayer does not change God's ultimate purpose for our lives or the world. But it does mean that we can affect the path God chooses to take to work out that will. God did not change his ultimate will for my father. My father eventually died. My father is with the Lord in glory. I mean, if he hadn't died, he'd be 107 years old now. And he'd be saying, this is getting a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> but it may have impacted the road or the timing God chose to use in working out his will in my dad's life. Prayer isn't magic. It won't always change what happens. We can't, if God isn't like a vending machine where we put a, a dollar's worth of prayer in and, and push the lever and get a dollar's worth of answer. Prayer, God is perfectly free to say no to our prayers. And sometimes it's a good thing that he does. Sometimes we pray really stupid. But other times, as with my dad, he will say yes. Lewis writes, It is true that God does not need our prayer. But he points out that God doesn't need anything else we do either. 
God could, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food or give us food without the aid of laborers, bakers, and butchers, or knowledge without the aid of learned people, or convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soil and weather and animals and the muscles, minds, and will of people to cooperate in the execution of his will. Lewis concludes, It is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayer should affect the course of events than any of my other actions do. They have not advised or changed God's mind. That is his overall purpose. But that purpose will be realized in different ways, according to the actions, including the prayer of his creatures. And this leads us to the third reason we must be devoted to prayer. Prayer connects us to each other. And through prayer, we help each other. Paul writes that we are to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are not alone. We are not to pray only for ourselves. We are, to be, we are joined together as the body of Christ and as, as a body that we live. Fourth, prayer reminds us of our need for God. J.I. Packer writes, when we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. In fact, the very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. And fifth and finally, we must be devoted to prayer because the very act of praying makes us larger. As we practice in prayer, even if we're not yet fully devoted to it, we are going to develop our ability to really appreciate the actions of a God who is way beyond who we are. The experience of prayer makes us larger and larger and larger. So Jesus tells us a parable to remind us that we must always pray and not lose heart. In fact, far from losing heart, we are to give thanks. The last thing Paul writes about prayer in Colossians 4.2 is that prayer is to be done with an attitude of thanksgiving. We can be thankful because we have a God who wants to hear our prayers. In fact, he delights in them. We also have a God who listens to our prayers. We have a God who is built in the very fabric of the universe the possibility that we can make a difference simply by getting down on our knees. We can be thankful for that. We have a God who has given us the gift of others and connects us to those we love even at a distance through prayer. And we can be thankful for that. We have a God who loves us enough to remind us who we are. He loves us enough to remind us that we need him. And we can be thankful for that. And finally, we have a God who wants us to grow bigger and bigger. Finally, until scripture says, until we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's the ultimate goal. And one of the ways he makes us bigger is when we come into his presence in prayer. And we can be thankful for that. We have a lot to be thankful for. So let us devote ourselves even more firmly to prayer. 
And remember to pray always and not lose heart. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word to us. We thank you that you know us so well, that you know that we can become disappointed, that we can lose heart. You know that that's a real possibility for us uh, because things don't always happen according to our timeline. Your ways aren't our ways, and sometimes we wonder at what you're doing. But we thank you that you know us well enough, and you tell us this parable to remind us that we must always pray. Because you love us. Amen. Amen.